Hello, and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm Regan Levitt, one of your co-hosts for the summer, joining me live in studio. He's never held a baby, nor dropped one, because he's too scared, John McMahon. Uh, that's extremely true. I'm going to have no Lenny mishaps with infants, because I would just pass on the whole thing at all. Even if they smelled good, even if they were named after me. Just hard pass on the whole endeavor. <laughs> what do you think about that strategy? I'm sure that our friends who recently had a baby appreciate it. Yeah, but I don't want to put uh, don't want to put that that child in, in any danger whatsoever. Now, Regan, we're joined by a very special guest. Today. Yes, on the line with us. Uh, on the line with us, uh, joining us on the other line. She is both more intelligent and a better negotiator than the Italian Prime Minister. <laughs> it's Lucia Monzi. Lucia, thank you for joining us on Not Quite Great Books. Oh my gosh, it's such a delight to be here with you guys. What a great introduction. Yes. <laughs> that um, was it amazing. Works, it works on many levels. It's true. <laughs> I think about both the fictional and definitely the real life Italian prime ministers. Uh, <laughs> Lucia is a colleague of Regan and I, a wonderful colleague, a trusted colleague of Regan and I, is also herself Italian. Um, so that's that does play into this whole situation. Yes. And also keenly aware of Italian po- politics. Yes. Exactly. With lots of thoughts on Italian prime ministers. Yes. Because Lucia being smarter not only than the prime ministers, but also than me, I was like, oh, Lucia, let's have you on. You know, what about episode five? And then Lucia was like, actually, in episode six, the Italian prime minister is on and maybe it would make sense to have me on for that episode, which was correct, objectively. <laughs> It was it was meant to be a corruption a correction more like I am so looking forward to commenting on this. I thought the confrontation in episode six is so fun uh, to talk about, so that was the reason why it wasn't meant to be a correction. So uh, it, even if it was intended, that would have been totally warranted and fine. So we are talking today about the Young Pope episode six, directed by Paolo Sorrentino, written by Paolo Sorrentino, Pepe Fiore, and Umberto Cantarella. Uh, HBO should pay their writers. And Regan, would you like to share the IMDb summary with us? Sure. Nine months after the Pope's ascension to power, the church faces a financial crisis. There is joy for Esther, while Ducillier is put in a difficult position. Full of euphemisms all over the place. Indeed. But maybe before we dive in, Lucia, since you're joining us for just this one episode, could you maybe just share a little bit about like your general thoughts or perceptions about the show or your relationship to it or like the Italianness of it, um, if you care to specifically? Yeah, no, that is a great question, especially about the Italianness. I will say, uh, you know, obviously Paolo Sorrentino being one of the greatest Italian directors at the time. Uh, when I when I watch this TV show, there are so many cultural references, little things about even just the way that Italians live Catholicism or something about Italian Catholicism that are so present throughout the TV show. Uh, so, you know, even just I, I, I listened to some of the episodes before joining you guys and I heard you talking about Boyello and, you know, the different aspects of this character, which I Really, really, really like. I find Boyan extremely fun in some way. Also shady, but mostly fun. <laughs> but, <laughs> but his obsession with soccer is something that, you know, really, really endears him to me, humanizes him so much. 
Uh, and even the Do fact you share that he, his identity, I understand you're not yourself from Naples. So I imagine you would have beef with Foyello over which team to support. <laughs> well, well, Napoli just won the championship this year. So, okay. uh, but yes, I'm not a Napoli fan. I'm an AC Milan fan. I would definitely have a beef with Foyello. <laughs> and it's funny because these kind of dynamics come out at the end of episode six, very briefly, which it's extremely fun. But again, like, it humanizes Boyello so much, but also there are some folksy elements throughout the TV show. In episode four, we see Petola, and you know, I listened to your discussion of Petola and how he presents himself as this sort of mystic that can speak to the to the Virgin Mary. And you know, when I watched that that part of the episode, um, I have to confess, like growing up in Italy. Uh, it was not uncommon to see these kind of things being reported on TV too. Like from time to time, you would have, you know, somebody who claimed, you know, I can speak to the Virgin Mary or like you would have, you know, TV, um, the, the Italian TV broadcasting about, I don't know, a statue of the Virgin Mary that all of a sudden started to cry and things like <laughs> this. Like these, you know, these, I think to me, this feels like and sounds like, a little bit of folklore in how Italians experience Catholicism. Like these things speak deeply to my own experience of Catholicism. So that, you know, I really appreciate the Italianness that comes across in this TV show. It kind of reminds me of home a little bit. It makes me feel a little bit less nostalgic since I cannot travel back to Italy this summer. But yeah, it's, yeah. That's definitely, there's a lot of Italianness in, in every episode. Yeah, I love that. And I mean, this is something Regan and I have talked about a lot, Lucia, and that is like, how do you interpret the show's perspective on Catholicism? So you identified like the Italian elements of the way it's in, interested in that relationship, but just like as a moral or ethical or aesthetic or political evaluation of the church, like how do you think the show is viewing Catholicism? So that's really interesting. I think there are two themes, essentially, at least like there are two themes I made up for myself, this whole, you know, theory about the show, at least. You are fitting in beautifully <laughs> on the Not Quite Great Books podcast. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> because to me, so first of all, I think the show has these uh, big discussion of the church's relationship with sexuality, which is truly... Mm. It's infused in every aspect of the show, I think. Uh, and I think, you know, I listened to your discussion of, you know, Lenny's agenda for kicking out of the church priests that, according to his vision, should not be in the church uh, because they're they're homosexuals. You know, throughout throughout the TV show, there's this discussion of the church's relationship with sexuality, which also comes out in episode six in so much because we see Lenny's best friend clearly behaving in a way that probably would not please Lenny, would not conform to the church's doctrine. So I think to me, what one thing that is fascinating is about is really this emphasis on what is the church's understanding of sexuality and is this really something that can be lived up to by human beings? Yeah. Uh, because, you know, this idea of celibacy, it seems like nobody can really live up to this ideal except for Lenny. And uh -huh. Lenny, the way he abides by the uh, principle of celibacy is not human. Like, it feels like <laughs> it's not, you know. <laughs> Lenny seems like he can do this only because he's completely abstracted from human experience. He doesn't, uh -huh. you know, I think Regan was mentioning this in one of the previous episodes. 
um, Lenny just cannot handle human experience, humans in general. It just doesn't know how to relate to people. And, and I think that's the only reason why he can truly, he's so radical in the way in which he understands celibacy with this very deep homophobia, obviously. Uh, but I also think that Lenny presents a way of, Lenny presents an understanding of Catholicism that is extremely ideological, extremely radical. He's a revolutionary. He is a revolutionary with a revolutionary zeal. And in fact, he's, his goal is to shake up a system that, according to Voyello, has worked in the same way with the same corrupt <laughs> rules forever. And Lenny's trying to shake up something that, you know, has its own rules and its own and kind of thrives on its own hypocrisy in a way. But, you know, Lenny really represents to me the, the zeal of the radical revolutionary that wants to shake up the system. So, yeah, that's kind of my theory of the show. And I think there's like a, an easy transition there into this episode where, you know, that we have for what, 10, 12 minutes of the runtime of this episode, the um, like dick measuring contest slash political negotiation slash confrontation between Lenny and the Italian prime minister, right? Fictionalized Italian prime minister. But like, I don't know, I was getting like Macron vibes, like the mm. Italian Macron. Uh, is I think the way that I would describe this Italian prime minister is depicted in the show. Maybe kind of, Regan, you can start and throw it to Lucia in terms of how you interpreted that scene. Well, do we want to throw our theme for our main discussion sure, as we yes, launch we it? Sure, probably should do that. Okay. Um, about a better host than I am. It's the writing teacher in me, just very organized. <laughs> right, so today we, we threw out the idea that we're going to talk a little bit about the relationship of the Vatican to the secular world um, and also kind of the demands that are presented on being human who is also like being a human who is also Catholic. Um, so the meeting with the prime minister, I felt like this was like the ultimate demands. It's the ultimate set of demands placed from a religious factor onto the secular state. Um, I thought it was interesting that they framed it super private. And so I was thinking about it of like, mm -hmm. how does that deal with like, this sort of privacy effect, but also like being American, I feel strongly about the separation of church and state. And I don't know how true that is in Italy. Um, but also Lenny is American, so he should know better. Um, Lenny also like, as we've talked about through other podcasts, like Lenny's trying to like d demonstrate this vision of him as Jesus all the time. And it's, I think, quite clear he's trying to do that right now with he's like, oh, I'm going to petition the government um, just like Christ did and, like, you know, get in the way of things and muck things up for my agenda. And I, you know, if I can interject, I <laughs> I think, you know, there are so many, so there are so many things in that uh, confrontation that are so specific to the Italian context too. So, you know, uh, I think at some point, uh, at some point, they mentioned the eight per thousand. Uh, I would be happy to, you know, give you some context if that's helpful. Uh, they mentioned the Lateran Pax and the relationship between church and state in Italy. Uh, so there are a lot of things that are very, very specific to the Italian context in that confrontation. Um, and, you know, <laughs> as soon as I saw that confrontation, um, well, first of all, the actor playing the prime minister, Stefano Corsi, since we're going to talk, well, you're going to talk about 
the hot ratings later. <laughs> if there's time, you're joining us. So. <laughs> I <hope> so. <laughs> when I saw Stefano Corsi was playing the prime minister, I completely forgot that he was the actor. He's considered one of the most handsome Italian actors. With good reason, yeah. for the record. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. He does give Macron vibes in that scene. I completely agree. Um, and, you know, I, th- I think, you know, first of all, the confrontation starts with the Pope kind of mocking him, which is kind of interesting because he said, well, I waited nine months because I didn't expect you to last nine months. <laughs> and that's kind of the big stereotypes about Italian governments. One big thing that most people seem to know about Italian governments is that they don't last. They change all the time. We are never sure who's going to be the prime minister next who is the prime minister at the moment. So it's interesting because the confrontation starts with the Pope kind of mocking him, like Lenny is already trying to put himself in a situation of, I'm your superior. Um, But it really kind of made me think about the power of beauty, the power of the body that you discussed in episode four, because yes, it's a dick measuring competition between two people that are profoundly aware of their beauty profoundly aware of the impact that their image has on public opinion and how powerful it can be. And essentially the confrontation between them is a contest between, it's a contest between two people that are clearly aware that they depend on public opinion in some way they can, that they can shape and direct public opinion. But to get down to the specifics of the Italian context. So, you know, uh, first of all, Lateran Pax, it's interesting that Lenny, brings up the territorial boundaries that the Lateran mm-hmm. Pax decided. Like the Lateran Pax is this kind of treaty, is a treaty that regulates the relationship between the Vatican and the Italian state. And with the Lateran Pax, it was, the, the, the borders of the Vatican state were decided, were established. So it's very clear that by reaching the Lateran Pax, Lenny wants to expand the territory, wants to expand the temporal power of the Pope. Uh, but the other thing that is very specific, so actually, at some point in the conversation, uh, the prime minister brings up the Angelus in St. Peter's Square, and he's basically telling Lenny, you have lost your power also because you have withdrawn yourself from, from the public. Like, nobody has seen you. Nobody knows what you look like. And he mentioned the Angelus in St. Peter. Now, to give you a sense of how influential the church is in Italian politics. So every Sunday, the Pope officiates the Mass at the Vatican. The the Mass concludes with the Angelus in St. Peter's Square. The Pope shows up at a window in his residence, you know, looking down on St. Peter's Square. (laughs) Crowds of people are usually gathering St. Peter's Square for the Angelus. But the interesting thing is that if you live in Italy and you turn on TV on Sunday morning... Everything that you will see on the main TV channel, state-funded TV channel, from 9 a.m. to noon, will be the broadcast of the Mass, the live broadcast of the Vatican, one program about religious stuff, another program about Catholic stuff. (laughs) And And finally, at noon, you get the main state-funded TV channel broadcasting the Pope's Angelus. And so in my experience growing up in Italy, I grew up knowing that my parents would turn on the TV at noon to watch the Angelus of the Pope and get the Papal Blessing on TV. And so 
when when the prime minister brings up the Angelus, he's talking specifically about the power of the Catholic Church in the Italian mindset of, you know, being so influential that you wake up on Sunday morning and most Ita- most Catholic families in Italy are going to start open, you know, turn on the TV and watch the Pope at noon. So that is one way in which the, the church is extremely influential in Italian politics. It's part of it's part of our weekend routine, essentially, if you've grown up there. Uh, the other very specific thing that maybe helps understand the confrontation is this mentioning of the A per thousand. Basically, yes. there's this mm-hmm. provision in the Italian tax code where the A per thousand is a, a part of your taxes that will go to the church, that will be directly diverted to the church by the state. Uh, and so that's 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 the way that's the way it works. Things have changed significantly since this was introduced because the Catholic Church is not the only beneficiary of the A per thousand. You can choose other religious denomination to divert these funds hmm. to. Okay. Uh, so okay. yeah, <laughs> but it's still it's still you know it's yeah it's a unique institutional situation where the church and the Italian state have basically come to this agreement where the church depends on income tax from Italian citizen and it knows that it has you know profits coming directly from income tax uh, diverted through the Italian state every year so these are like the context specific things that maybe can help us a little bit discussing this confrontation Oh my god, that's like fucking wild to me. I mean, in the U.S., we just do it indirectly, right? We're like, oh, let's just tax exempt right, the, all the churches, the, regardless of the bullshit that they engage right. in, or just let's just pass around a plate and then hope people don't take money <laughs> off of it. <laughs> Have I done this before? The world may never know. Or we won't tell. Uh, longstanding, longstanding traditions of tithing. Um, we we won't report you back to Thomas Aquinas. You know, I think it'll be okay. It's really, I'm not worried about Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> judgment. It's Father Stans I'm worried about. That is extremely helpful context, both uh, shittiness of the U.S. tax code and uh, <laughs> tithing questions and also the Italian context. So, I mean, it's probably worth discussing Lenny as a political actor here in this confrontation because uh, we've been, Regan and I, discussing, obviously, like how fashy is Lenny. And one of the crucial parts that, missing is that he's internally fascistic right towards the other cardinals he is doctrinally like uh you know catholic fascism or something like that potentially but like the lack of the public display or kind of the public visual politics of it right kind of like prevents it from being a public facing like form of something like fascism and then in this episode, right, as Lucia was pointing out, he uses at least the visual politics of his own beauty mm-hmm. and confrontation and competition with the Italian prime minister and the Italian prime minister's own beauty. Um, Stefano Corsi, did I remembering that correctly, Lucia? Perfect, yes. Um, so, uh, Lucia, how would you uh, how would you evaluate um, as a political actor uh, one Lenny Bellardo? <laughs> well, I mean... It's hard to not recognize that he's an extremely skilled political actor, at least like, you know, if I have to base this evaluation on the confrontation with the prime minister, uh, because, you know, it's true that he's been withdrawing himself from the public. So nobody knows what he looks like. Uh, But, you know, the way the way in which Lenny knows that he can use public opinion is extremely fascinating to me. Like when he says that, 
I can look like Christ if I want to, um, you know, and she does it all the time already. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And again, like he has the zeal of the revolutionary. Um, so yeah, I mean, to me, like he's an extremely, is an extremely skilled politician, much more skilled than the people that surrounds him, much more skilled than Boyello, much more skilled in a way more skilled than the prime minister of Italy. And he seems to be successful so far. Uh, because until, at least until episode six, he has this radical agenda. And so far, he's been extremely successful in, you know, avoiding traps and, you know, uh, blackmailing the people that actually were trying to blackmail him. Uh, so, you know, so far, he looks like a very successful revolutionary. I think, you know, that would be my my brief assessment of him as a political actor, at least. What about you, Regan? Um, see, I, I'm kind of on the f- fence a little bit of like, I think it's clear he's very skilled at acting in a political way. I think that he's still, despite the lack of visual rhetoric that is often um, associated with fascism, I really feel like he's trying to create this weird, mysterious Big Brother effect. So like Big Brother Jesus, maybe. His Big Brother has like a very mysterious experience or er, appearance in 1984. It's like, a mustache and like that's about it right that's like the only iconic image of it and his is just that he's a figure in shadows um so i think that this is still him also by making voyello especially in this episode the public face of the church he's putting a lot of pressure on voyello to behave in the way that he wants or else if voyello's gonna lose his job if voyello loses his job uh, Girolamo's kind of screwed, um, you know, so I think that's kind of my assessment on it is that he, I think is trying, he's pulling away to kind of maintain, like, you know, people talk about like, oh, behold the mystery of God. And like, we don't really know. I mean, we know what Jesus looks like, but people make it up. Like, yes, me and my beautiful blonde haired, blue eyed Jesus. Um, <laughs> but also like maybe he's the Obi-Wan Kenobi Jesus, but really he was probably like Brown with curly hair. Um, you know, we and like, or, or like, you know, how many scans have they done of the Shroud of Turin? Yeah, also, so many. to try and figure out what Jesus maybe looked like. Also, dear dear listeners, I'm not convinced that the Shroud of Turin is actually. <laughs> I don't think it is. Yeah, I don't think it is. Why would it be in Turin? I don't know. <laughs> should, I, should I say Torino? <laughs> I, I only know how it ended up there, like the last chain of how it ended up there, but yeah. I don't know. Because like at the end of World War II, the king of Italy, before being rightly exiled from the country, the king like uh, gifted the Shroud of Turin to Turin. That's the mm. only reason why I know that it's in Turin, but I don't know how the kings of Italy came into right? possession of this. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Maybe uh, questions for another day. I mean, it's probably like a Roman Empire, like that, something that would make sense. down to eventually the like Italian monarchy. That'd be my guess, but what do I know? Probably. Yeah. So that's kind of my thing. It's like maybe I think wonder one of it is that he's like, one part is he's trying so hard to emulate like this mysterious Jesus figure. And then also now we see him place Voyello as public face. Hmm. I think like this, a, a two part question on the first part, I think is for Lucia specifically. And then the second part is for any of us is, you know, like it's worth noting. And then I think somewhat setting to the side, 
how realistic it is of the show to depict the ability of the Pope to have influence over the electoral politics of the state of Italy, right? And so I'm interested, Lucia, if you could speak at all to kind of the political influence or lack thereof that um, kind of concretely the church may or indirectly may have um, in Italian politics. But then like setting aside how realistic, because I don't think that's a useful standard to hold art to. Um, why, what do we think the show is trying to do by essentially granting Lenny the point that like, if he said, you know, don't vote, the people aren't going to go vote. So maybe the first part of the question is for Lucia and then we can take up the rest of it together. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting question. I think that it's not, it's not too far from reality, at least in the sense that, you know, clearly, uh, the list of requests is so bombastic and you know extreme over the top right yeah over the top like no you cannot reopen an international treaty to negotiate the boundaries (laughs) of the Vatican State that's not gonna happen uh but you know um I think even to even to this day the church the Catholic Church maintains institutional channels that allow it to influence um policy because uh, in the previous government, so right now we have a right-wing government, but before the right-wing, go- the current right-wing government, we had a different government under Prime Minister Draghi, and I think that Parliament was considering uh, a law to basically um, protect people from discrimination based on gender. So it was a law that was heavily punishing homophobia, uh, and the church used its institutional channels to signal to the Italian government that it was displeased with some aspects of this law. Actually, it was a bill that never became a law. It did not go anywhere, but parliament was considering it. And this happened in 2021. I forget exactly. Like, it was very recent. So, you know, in a way, it's not too far from reality in the sense that to this day, the Catholic Church does have immense influence over Italian politics, both from an institutional point of view. Mm -hmm. Like in this case, the Vatican literally sent a message uh, through the institutional channels established by the Lateran Pacts to Parliament saying, we are (laughs) suspicious of this law. We don't like it, you know, and the law never passed. Uh, But also informally, I thought something that was very accurate about the confrontation in the episode is that the prime minister cannot be honest about his plan to revolutionize Italian politics. He cannot be honest. Like he goes into the, the, the room with the Pope, they have this sort of argument, and then the prime minister comes out of the audience and he goes to the press and he says, this Pope is a saint. He's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to do all the stuff that I said, you know, I've been planning to do all along. And Lenny is like trying to, you know, comfort Voyello that he's not actually going to do these things that he's bluffing right is Lenny's term that he's I think twice in that brief scene yeah yeah and so you know to me like it is true that if you look at Italian political parties both left and right there is extreme hesitance to be um to to push through a secular agenda like uh, there is no Italian politician that will ever speak badly of the Catholic Church in public, even if they are secular and left-wing, they will be extremely cautious in the way they talk about the Catholic Church. And so I thought that was something that Sorrentino really captured, and I think it's really accurate. I also I also want to say another accurate thing is the role of the Secretary of State. 
mm-hmm. uh, because mm-hmm. Boyello, no, like I think he, I think he finds himself very at ease dealing with state officials uh, outside the Vatican too. He's he's a political actor too. And, you know, if we look at recent Italian politics and Vatican politics, the Secretary of State of the Vatican usually is uh, described and understood to be an important part of the Italian political discourse. Like the Secretary of State speaks for the Vatican and all political parties listen. So that is also kind of accurate. I mean, witness in the show, right, the wall of books that Voyolo has collected, of books written mm-hmm. about himself in both Italian and English. And I think maybe if we were to look closely, potentially other languages as well. Yep. I mean, Regan, like, what do you think the show is trying to do in terms of the way it specifically identifies and kind of imposes on the viewer, like Lenny imposes on the prime minister, his political power? Mm-hmm. Well, because I'm wondering if, like, if this is from, from my thought, if this show being on HBO, like an American-owned company is framing it towards an American audience? Is it one trying to show us like, this is not a good route to go down because like the evangelical church is always trying to impose their views on the state government. Not at all relevant with our Supreme Court. No, not in the slightest. I don't know what you're talking about. Although, I mean, the Catholic influence on our Supreme Court is also quite strong at the moment, too. Mm, True. And I would also agree with things that, like, Lucia is saying is that, like, I also think, like, the U.S. political system toes the line when addressing religion at all. I mean, Joe Biden always signs off with, God bless the troops. So I think it's also pointing out, like, this is the kind of influence that is like built into the Italian system versus the influence that's executed by our religious system and our into our government is very different in some ways. So I think it's trying to impose this idea that like, I'm wondering if it's asking us like, should religion affect our governance as much as it does? Like, I would assume that you and I vote saying like, let's keep things separate. Like, that's (laughs) fine. You do you, but let's not. Um, I would not presume to know how Lucia votes. We, we're still getting <laughs> to know each other. But um, so, but there are a lot of people, like I have had former students of mine say like, well, whoever the Catholic Church endorses, like that's who I vote for. And I'm like, oh. Or like, well, they're anti-abortion and anti-gay marriage, so that's who I vote for. And that's because those are, you know, religiousized issues. Um, so part of me is thinking like thinking about it that way of like the like if the church ever told anyone in America to not vote, it wouldn't I don't know how much of a difference it would make. Um, but also like we have a very different system in that there's a lot more political parties to engage with in Italy. And we have two that are kind of the same. I would contest that. But um, that's the political scientist in me. Oh, do you, are there, am I wrong? Are there more? I would say. No, no, two parties, uh, absolutely, right? But I think there are actually distinct differences. Okay. Even, like, even from a leftist perspective, I think the differences okay. are clear. Um, I mean, I think one thing that's notable about the way that Lenny tries to wield this political power is being consistent with his general theory of how to be Pope Mm -hmm. and that he's not saying I'm going to go out and instruct Catholics to vote for your opponent. Much like I have myself withdrawn, I am asking you to not vote. I'm instructing you to not vote. Right. So there's the same sort of like, how do we have a politics that is based on absence or mystery or non-participation or Mm -hmm. non-presence? And Lenny is using that as a very explicit threat 
even though it's a, a threat of non-participation. Mm-hmm. So Lucia, I know you are on a limited time schedule, so maybe we can, uh, Reed and I can finish out the main discussion. We can uh, do a couple segments with you. Sure, that'd be great. So do we need to talk about Andrew? We should talk about Andrew, who is, to say the least, not keeping his vows in this episode. Nope. He is um, certainly placed in some difficult positions. (laughs) I am uh, impressed with his flexibility. Yes. uh, Some very uh, interactive uh, threesomes happening in Andrew Dussolier's life back in Honduras. Yes. Um, So... I definitely was um, not entirely surprised that Andrew did it. It was, you know, was in a, I don't know, Honduran threesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, he definitely um, struck me as someone who, you know, he's, um, you know, been framed as the antithesis yes. um, or anti-Lenny. So, of course, he's going to give in to these things and enjoy himself and, like, um, indulge, yeah. um, which Lenny does not do. Right. It's like, yeah, uh, like, zest for life and, mm-hmm. like being by and like indulging you know indulging in the sex that that enables for him like yeah. is you know affirming to him it seems i, I mean so. i mean i think there's not even any moment during the sex itself or even like the way he gives the speech um or the uh, address to what was his church and he's now about to go back to rome like he doesn't express directly on his face or to his audience or like the way that Scott Shepard acts it, like any kind of guilt or remorse, mm-hmm. right? Like it seems like a genuine affirmation for him. Mm-hmm. That's true. I didn't even think about that. Um, but yeah, I think it's clear that he um, is kind of making the best of his life um, out there. Good for him. Um, and then, so he's giving into his own physical demands, right? Yeah. And the, but also the demands on him as a priest. And then he goes back to Rome, um, and he is given demands also by Lenny. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we've kind of framed this and talked about it with Lucia in terms of like the relationship to the outside world. And as you, I think, correctly put it, it's one of the demands that the outside world imposes versus the demands that the church imposes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like, arguably, I think Andrew is the, clearest or starkest example of that in this episode like and he's facing an additional set of constraints which are like there's some allusion to like gang violence or drug cartels Mm -hmm. or something in honduras and the church he had been um, preaching at right so there's whereas lenny like i imagine is very much the same kind of person with just like a little bit less grandiosity and pomposity from pre or from being in new york or being in the church in new york to being in the vatican as pope like andrew they are really two different people Mm. based on the demands and like the environment that he is forced into with regards to the church and then like is open up to opened up onto as like living his life in Honduras. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you sense anything in his speech um, aside from remorse that we can pull out about his character? I mean, I think that the speech is actually some resonances with Lenny, right? Mm. So Lenny talked about himself as a coward in the previous mm-hmm. episode and that all priests are cowards. Mm. And what is uh, Andrew Dussolier's speech here, if not about how he was too cowardly to ever challenge right, members of the church, either in rhetoric or in action, right? Mm. Like, you know, he says this new priest is, like, going to challenge you and say, actually, if you are, you know, part of a drug cartel or whatever, like, don't come or don't take communion or don't take confession mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be. But he said he never had the heart to do that. Like, he right. was, um, he let them, he let himself be in a very comfortable relationship for both he and his parishioners. Mm. Yeah. 
So that's that's the bunny uh, Andrew connection, right? right resonance right, that they right. see for the very, very stark differences. Right. Like, I don't picture Lenny having a threesome because, like, the earthly delights seem to not particularly mean anything to him. Right. And I also don't see Lenny, you know, ever also letting, um, you know, he said we're not going to automatically forgive last episode. Um, and certainly, you know, would say cartel members cannot be absolved of their sins. Um, which again, I think is also like a, like a political move of Lenny's of like, we're not going to let you can, I think it's certainly possible to be a devout Catholic who, um, feels bad for being a drug cartel. I'm sure there's several of them out there. Um, but a political action of like affecting the economy of Central America. Um, yeah. So no, I mean, but but yeah, just do so ways. I'm not a hero. I'm afraid, just like you, is mm-hmm. very strongly in a more practical or applied way. I think what Lenny was talking about when he's talking to Esther, like, is I think Lucia was talking about that for everything for Lenny is oftentimes so abstract or metaphysical, and here, like, Dussolier is confronting the on the ground reality of you know that he is not a hero and that he's afraid, right? Like, he wants the like benefits and delights and pleasures, quite literally, um, that are available to him, but like is also shirking some of like the ethical or mm-hmm. priestly uh, duties and obligations. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, and then he gets confronted by Lenny, as mm-hmm. you pointed out, right. And the demands that Lenny places on him to like essentially lay a literal temptation in front of all candidates for the priesthood, mm. right. To test whether or not they're gay or queer. Right. Um, and Andrew is, radically opposed to this mm-hmm. does it anyway mm-hmm. what do you think what did you think about that like the inter- the brief interaction between the two of them upon his return or you know how this affects Andrew and this couple of scenes we get after that with him I feel like he again um, gives into what demands are important to him yeah which is that he you know obviously receives compensation for his work in the church um, and so I think might be thinking in that way first. And so that's kind of my small thought. My bigger thought is that is this us seeing Andrew um, at a crossroads? Like, mm-hmm. is he choosing his own understanding of godliness, which involves earthly delights, which involves absolving sinners, which involves like preaching to um, criminals and supporting them that way? Yeah. Um, and his own personal convictions about what Catholicism is, which includes the queer community as well, because he's among them. Um, or is he choosing to go with the doctrine because he is clearly a dedicated religious man? Yes. Um, and believes strongly in the power of God. So that was kind of, I think, him going like, well, if this, the, the choices I'm given, I'm going to go with. Believing at least go with God. Yeah. Right. Um, And maybe he tries to do other things. I don't know. That might be a rectory point. Yeah. We we can can go back to Andrew in the rectory too. But, I mean, obviously, the kind of background plot in this episode that 
um, kind of adds like if the political plot like of course is extremely serious but also has a lot of like verve and fun to it right the extremely dark undertone of Lenny's papacy or of this episode mm-hmm. is the position that Andrew gets puts in gets put in to like first have someone else while he's in the room tell this young man uh, Angelo Sanchez mm-hmm. who had really really wanted to become a priest that he couldn't um, he then gets like quasi propositioned by uh, like older Italian woman, attractive Italian woman in a restaurant, mm-hmm. followed by Angel coming up, uh, you know, telling him how he, how Andrew ruined his life, how the church ruined his life. He only mm-hmm. wanted to serve God, um, that he's not gay, right? He includes that and then throws the wine, glass of wine in his face, runs out. Andrew finds him just like sobbing in the mm-hmm. entryway to a building right. and comforts him, right? Mm-hmm. There's no chastisement mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Um, did that particular moment surprise you? No. Yeah. I think that is that is Andrew at his best. I think mm. Andrew's becoming one of my favorites okay. because I think he is, like Gutierrez, an essentially good man. Um, I agree. I mean, I think there there's no reason why a gay man can't become a priest, frankly. Um, even though Angela has, you know, says he's not. Um, th- that if you feel called to serve like I am, I would often describe myself as a person called to service. Mm. It's not in service of God or yeah. anything, but like in service of others. Mm-hmm. If you are called to serve and that service happens to be the service of God, then you should be allowed to do that. Um, I also think that this is him um, doing the right thing of like this man is claiming that he his life has been ruined. Yeah, and there is other way. There are other ways to serve God, surely. Andrew is showing what the role of a priest is in this mm. moment, right? He's straddling both like the secular world yeah. and the religious world in this moment and doing it in a way that is very kind and what you would want out of a priest. Right. Um, so in some ways, like the, he's indicating, even as he's going along with, or he's carrying out Lenny's directive, perhaps, mm-hmm. is the is the way to say it, that there was some sort of alternative that required less stark, perhaps, of a demarcation between the inside the church, the outside mm-hmm. the church, mm-hmm. right, and a couple of aspects of his life. And so, like, Dussolier becomes kind of a uh, humanizing contrast to Lenny there, at the same time that then, like, Angelo, who jumps off of the Vatican to commit suicide at the end of the episode, you know, is the human cost of Lenny's policy, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, that's, you know, I think we can imagine going to be a shock to Andrew. I don't feel bad uh, spoiling that he's going to be upset about this. Angelo's suicide at the end is a reminder to the viewers that like, or, you know, a challenge to someone like me who views this show that is like one full of life and verve that, you know, to not be too comfortable in the like, isn't this show weird and bizarre and cool? Like it also has this um, understanding of the consequences of the kind of ideology it puts into somebody like Lenny. Mm. Right. Like it's not going to let one get off easy with reveling in Lenny as I enjoy reveling in Lenny. Right. And also showing the real consequences yeah. of, of this sort of line of thinking, of this sort of radical. Yeah. Um, it can be applied to a lot of different schools of thought. It can. Yeah. It, for somebody who, like, to your point, was called to serve, and when we interpret that broadly, right, one thinks right. about right. Uh, the, the extent of those losses. Do you have any other thoughts about Andrew or Angelo that you'd like to share? And Gutierrez, I think, in some ways is... Uh, Pretty straightforward, but I think notable 
exemplar of this question about the relationship of the church to the secular world because he has some moment of clarity, apotheosis, like catharsis, joy, and a very intimate, kind moment with Pope Lenny when he receives his cardinalship and like he gets the whole deal and the headwear that goes with it and like does the hugs across like the key figures of the in the front row. And then literally the second he steps outside of the Vatican grounds, he almost gets hit by a moving vehicle. Right. <laughs> right. So like the, you know, literally like the best moment of his life and is near death, just whether he is one step inside or one step outside the church. Right. I don't know. I mean, it makes me sad that he has not yet gone to a gay bar, which is my prediction. <laughs> um, stick with it. Um, so he, I, I feel like Gutierrez, again, he finds such safety in the confines of things. And I think it's a really interesting, like, as I think about it now, it's, it might be a really interesting application for us to think about, like, um, like folks who are autistic and how they find such comfort in their routines and knowing what's happening and what to do versus, um, you know, I mean, we frequently work with college freshmen who struggle to adjust, um, and like how much harder it is when you are someone who finds such, um, a way to be so comfortable and happy in that routine and knowing what to expect. And like, I think that's a, it might be an interesting way of thinking about disability. And the ritualistic nature of Gutierrez is so deeply brought home by the way the show depicts this ceremony. Right. So we get the kind of like staticky, like light electronica sound soundtrack for the scene of Gutierrez, like cutting back and forth to Esther giving birth, um, cutting back and forth to the threesome, right? So there's a way in which like we have these celebrations of certain kinds of life all cut together with the show's like weird sound design, which I, that I of course absolutely love with those three moments. That for Gutierrez happens like within the church for uh, Andrews, we were talking about it happens within the threesome. And then for Esther, it happens with her giving birth. So we should probably talk about uh, the demands on Esther and this new life that uh, she is now connected to. Mm, right. And like, I think it's kind of interesting that at first I really could not connect to um, that that was Esther and was really like going like what because that was like I think the flaw in the time jump that was happening um, which I think we're going to talk about later um, so I it seems like Esther's having a hard time giving birth um, for sure um, which I was also thinking about the demands of that yeah um, and again like my first reaction was like once we I figured out it was Esther um, was like oh the miracle worked yeah. But I don't, I, I don't know. Part of me thinks that like, well, maybe her husband just got it done, but I don't know because I'm a skeptic, but. No, I think I've always interpreted it and like some critics I know, like I think Shanti Collins, most notably among uh, faves of this podcast, like interprets it as we are meant by the show to take that as an actual miracle happened that Lenny mm. can do was performed that miracle literally as a saint in that one way at least. And mm -hmm. like he is the surrogate God dad of mm. uh, little pious. <laughs> what, what a, the worst baby name a, in human history. I, I've seen some people with some names where I really question it, but like, 
why would you do that to a child? Um, but I also think it's really interesting. Like, I thought of another, like, famous births, birth story in Italy of Under the Tuscan Sun in which Sandra Oh um, has her Italian citizenship baby um, playing while playing a lesbian also, where she's, like, so like enamored with her Italian hospital and thought about how Esther looks up and we see this like lovely scene of like <laughs> superimposed, um, kind of looking like stained glass of cherry blossoms, mm-hmm. which I thought was also very interesting. Mm-hmm. Again, implying also a virgin birth. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that like, if the miracle actually did happen, then mm-hmm. Esther is the Virgin Mary, not yes. the Virgin Mary, but like there was an immaculate conception yes. of, a, of a sort. Yeah. Um, so that was, I think, one takeaway I had. So I, I kind of preceded this moment. That was a strange metaphor to use. Uh, like preloaded that uh, particular moment. So the end of episode six is Lenny and Esther, or of episode five are Lenny and Esther in the garden, mm-hmm. right? And that flower opens. Mm-hmm. And I think we're meant to interpret that as actually like that's, you know, the sign that like Esther is conceived. That, yeah, Esther, the okay. baby has been oh, conceived. I didn't even, no, I didn't even think about um, that. So I was, I was wondering if I was going to give you the chance to go there in Regan Rectory last Did episode not. if you wanted to. But Did not. It's okay. It's a, um, it's an impossible task. You notice I don't have to do it. I don't okay. have to make predictions. Mm. Um, so that's just to say that, like, I think that's also uh, because the that flower is lit the same way that Lenny is lit in his most angelic moments, and like the dramatic opening of the flower, and then like the dialogue that briefly. happens happens between um them right so esther says i feel it right after the flower opens like with her hand on her stomach Mm. so like i think that we're meant to be like that is the moment of like you know esther's going to have a child nine months later child comes out you're so insightful john i've watched the show a bunch of times okay Um, yeah i had not put those things together yeah just like that. I think that's consistent with like the aesthetic project of this show. Right. Um, also consistent with the aesthetic prog- uh, project of this show, though, is as many like gags and jokes as they can about very serious things. Witness right. the officials from the Vatican come into the maternity ward, make everybody go into their hospital rooms and close the door. Mm-hmm. Um, there's And so Lenny walks in holding a giant bouquet so that nobody can see him because he's really <laughs> committed to the bit. So that was just really funny. That was funny. Um, especially like the people in the various rooms, like peeking out, out the window to see if they could get a glimpse of the of Pope, the Pope. Um, which they right. can't. And then there's, of course, the baby dropping. The infamous baby dropping scene. We've talked on many a times about the various baptism shenanigans, which I was reminded (laughs) of distinctly of one I've told John about before. And I think I've mentioned on an episode in which the priest is, um, you know, in the process of getting this child wet and slips and the this baby like slides through the baptismal font and goes flying, which just oh how horrifying! Um, as a person who, on the record, enjoys babies to a limited amount, um, don't really want one of my own. Um, my students today told me that was sad, <laughs> to which I was like, "Well, I've had students tell me that as well." So it's because they're all just like so pumped with um, hormones. <laughs> hormones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, just was shocked um of like but also like not shocked that lenny dropped a baby because i think um in some ways that is him um you know we often picture 
if there's anything we know that Jesus looked like at one point, to my point earlier about the Shroud of Turin, is that we know he was a baby. <laughs> and so I felt like also that was him, um, again, trying to quash the idea that this baby could become Pius the Fourteenth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really funny. And that he's also kind of dropping a-, a baby that's a, like a metaphor for Jesus and being like, well, I'm, and that's like us to take it. I was like, nope, he's, he's going to stay and pretend to be Jesus. Mm. Oh, like the baby, because of the immaculate conception of, right. the, of Pius the 14th, like yes. he has to drop lest that baby take his place yes. as yes. 21st century Jesus. Yes. Yeah. I love it. I never thought of that one. See, this is a, it's a two way street. It is. It absolutely is. That's why this is such a great podcast with its millions of listeners. Yes. I also enjoy subscribe to the Patreon. <laughs> we don't even have a Patreon. That's just a joke. Um, about to put fake bonus content for, right. Um, and like, Lenny is so clearly joyed openly with the baby. Um, you know, says that he'll right. fly high, right? Pleasure to make your acquaintance, Pius the Fourteenth. Right. Right. Is really into the smell of the baby and then drops it. And in the course of this, another one of like the gags of this episode are that he at times physically is blocking, but generally is like freezing out the um Potentially the bio dad. Yeah. Um, or like, you know, bystander a la Joseph. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what are you going to do? So I... Do we get the name? No, the, the, the guard's name is Peter. Yeah. That's right. Which, you know, mm. if you're going to make a show about Catholicism and call somebody Peter, like, there's some connotations that come with this. This is true. Because at first I was really like, do we know his name? Is his name Joseph? No, but it is Peter. Yeah. All right. I think that's probably it for the main discussion. So let's head into the segments. I think we're going to have Lucia for uh, for a segment within potpourri and then uh, hot restraining, okay. I think, is, is the plan. Uh, in the rectory, you said you maybe had some Andrew uh, predictions you wanted to put on the record. Well, I still think that he and Lenny are going to fight. But I also think that he is going to make a power move. Um, I'm starting to think that maybe he will join again also with Voyello, Sister Mary. Also, I miss Sister Mary this episode. Yeah, she shows up briefly yeah, yeah, in a couple briefly. shots, but like yeah. doesn't particularly have any dialogue. No, she doesn't really say remember. anything. Well, miss her. I mean, this is a gloss, but like we do get the young Sister Mary playing yes. basketball qua sexual awakening for all of the boys <laughs> of the orphanage. Right. So just want to throw that that right. happens That's in this true. episode. That's true. In like a seeming shared dream reverie daydream of the way that it's shot, it's like as if Lenny and Andrew were having that exact same memory at exactly the same time in exactly the same way. Right. Um, so that's my prediction is that they're going to start making plots against him. I also think that he may also be caught by Lenny, um, but that's going to trigger the move. Um, I think this episode more than ever has also made me want to predict that Girolamo is going to be in some serious distress. Okay. Um, uh, and I think that might be it for my predictions. All right, we will see. This was an episode that threw me off a lot. Yeah, this is, I have to say, not my favorite Young Pope episode. Mm-hmm. Um, after what might be my single favorite one. Okay. Um, so let's go to Glass. And I think kind of one of the things that makes this uh, at least questionable episode in terms of, like, it should invite critical response to is, you know, we get the very, very brief opening scene of a priest in the cafeteria at the Vatican. We're meant to believe it's like soon after Lenny's address um, to the Cardinals, like just keel over and die. 
like hard cut to black nine months later and we're back. Right. Do you think the time jump worked narratively and aesthetically? No. I was so confused. Um, mostly because like one, I took me a minute to recognize Esther and I was like, is, is Esther giving birth right now? I was really like, what, what is happening? Um, and then went ahead, um, and was like, like knew from a, you, from our conversations of planning to get Lucia on that we were looking to get, um, like, I knew that the Prime Minister was coming, and I was thinking, well, in time, like, that makes sense that he would have an audience with the Prime Minister. Um, and then finally put together the time lapse because the Prime Minister says, wow, you made me wait, like, nine months or something like that. Yeah. Um, so I really was like, this is not the show's best uh, attempt at a time jump. Yeah. I mean, what do you think the show missed out on by doing the time jump? Um, I think if they had established, well, I don't know. Because obviously part of this is like a, like the, the miracle setting. But I feel like it just, like, if they had established the context better in some ways, like if they had showed like a changing of a season, I don't really know the weather in Rome is like though, so I guess maybe I wouldn't have known. That would have that would have been my impetus of like something mm-hmm. like you know if we see some crispy leaves versus um, you know the sunshine that we have seen. Yeah, I would have been more inclined to be like ah yes or a light snowfall. <laughs> Although part of it is that like Lenny seems to bring about only the sun, like he's so beautiful that he affects <laughs> the weather. Like at, at times it's as if the show is depicting that precisely. Um, I think kind of one thing, and I'm not sure if I would have wanted this or I'm cool with the way the show did it, is that I'm really interested to know what Lenny's reaction was when he found out that Esther was pregnant. Mm, that's a good point. And, like, that's a scene that we don't get because of the time jump. And, right, like, right. You know, there are any number of other ones as well, but I think that that's kind of in the way the show uses the plot, uh, uses the time jump, that's, I think, the mm. most, the, the clearest example of, of what was missed out on. Right. Yeah. All right, so we got this time jump here happening this episode. We have, like, additional kind of political, legal things happening. Yes. So we find out by the fact that, like, an Italian police captain has come to talk to Voyello to interview Voyello, that something, we don't know what, has happened to Tonino Petola. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And that conversation between Voyello and, and the police captain is really funny because Voyello tries to, like, schmooze him, like, give him a book. Here, I'll give you a book. I, I'll sign a book for you. Um, and then, it's, amusingly, the captain's like, I actually would like the thousand and one people blackmailed by Voyello uh, <laughs> book, which is a great book. Um, would be interested in reading uh, that. Mm, maybe yeah. it'd be, maybe it'd be relevant to Lucia's research and, like, we can, you know, if the show needs a comparative uh, politics expert um, right. on judicial politics in Italy. And so, yeah, there's, and that ends of courses that she had noted with like a gag about the different football teams that they yes. support um, and Voyello is just like deeply offended that I think I think the police captain's like an inter Milan uh, yeah. fan I think I think the podcast needs to endorse the Milan team in honor of Lucia yes but I think Lucia said she was an AC Milan oh, right? I didn't know there were two Milan teams I believe there uh, are two Milan teams so yeah right we're endorsing AC Milan yeah it's official uh, football team of not quite great books a TV podcast done um, we'll do a we'll do a Patreon app breaking down the upcoming season for our favorite our, our patron saint of uh, football teams yes 
We also have in the conversation with Voyello and then as well as the prime minister, like other kind of ways that the political world is impeding on or becomes part of like the world of the young pope. So Voyello makes like an Islamophobic comment about like Islamic people being mm-hmm. fundamentalists mm-hmm. Um, because there's some Catholic fundamentalist sects that are yeah. arising. Right. And Lenny like goes, well, don't, you know, Islam has more followers around the world than the Catholic Church does. Right, right. Right? So the implication of that is fascinating. And also, is Vuelo's, like, if not Islamophobia, then, like, Islamic stereotyping or something like that um, that's happening there is, I think, part of it. We have this meeting of Lenny with um, some of the monks, Mm -hmm. right, which he closed out by telling them to put some shoes or socks on because the (laughs) air in here is unbearable. Um, We have the talk of banking regulations, right? Vuelo is like, oh, we used to be able to run the financial system and, you know, do some shady stuff and now with these new laws we can't and Mm -hmm. banking regulations then becomes a part of what Lenny is demanding of the prime minister right right. um so interesting especially because like yeah with the monk thing I thought that was quite interesting because I thought um if anything like Lenny would approve of strict adherence to a religious doctrine and if the order says like don't wear shoes then don't um, but God knows that I'm fascinated with the shoes of religious devotees. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that scene was really, really fascinating. If it's a somewhat minor scene because Bunny is like, who are you going to, like, how are you going to do a schism? All right. You want a schism? Then like, we're going to take back your beautiful uh, monasteries or she mm-hmm. says are like the greatest symbol of beauty in the world or something mm-hmm. to that effect. Um, and Jude Law is really... Uh, chewing the scenery almost quite literally, like Jude Law's use of his mouth is yeah. Pope Lenny in that scene. And also then in the, in the previous episode in his speech is, I think, um, quite intentional and over-dramatized to great effect. Agreed. Yeah. Um, so in Glass, I think the only other thing is just that one can continue to like check out how Lenny is being lit and how often indoors, outdoors, when Lenny is indoors, seemingly the sun only ever shines on him, mm-hmm. um, or he attracts the sun when he's outdoors, like it's pretty much always sunny. Right. Um, they oversaturate, right? The lens is, you know, the colors are a little bit different outside when Lenny is there compared mm-hmm. to like, quote unquote, normal real life. So just a, a quick lighting check in glass. Anything else we should throw in there? I don't think so. All right, then it's time for potpourri um, before we uh, have Lucia back for Where in the World is John's Confirmation Name, which we didn't actually finish, so I guess right. we can finish that segment and uh, then get to get to Lucia. So Lenny has opted for the, his green vestments. Right, and green is indicative of ordinary time, which I think probably should have been my indicator also that there had been a, chi- a time mm. jump, because ordinary time is like... The time between Easter and Advent, especially. Sure. Yeah, I guess that was one thing that I maybe should have picked up upon. But I think if he had been wearing purple, I would have been like, it's Christmas. Great. <laughs> um, you know, or pink is also the indicator of Christmas time. Um, so, yeah, I liked um, the green vestment. Also, keeping with the gloves mm-hmm. um, to see, to seal, to like hide some humanity, I think. Still. Beautiful green gloves. Like. I Yeah, but also eerie. Monsters are green, mm-hmm. right? Infamous, you know, Frankenstein, we envision as having green skin. Well, Frankenstein's monster. Yes, Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> uh, I mean, Frankenstein himself might have green hands. He plays around with a lot of chemicals. True. I thought I had two degrees in English here. Oh, well, it's fine. Right. Um, <laughs> it's so deeply, like, seated in our culture to misunderstand that. That this even a literal expert will occasionally slip that one up. This is true. Um, do you want to talk about the cafeteria? 
I mean, just like it's funny to say, I enjoy these like day in the life mm. brief scenes and vignettes okay. of the of the folks of the clergy and the Vatican. And then there's the very obvious symbol, um, which is even pointed out, I think, by Captain Aceta mm-hmm. that like a priest literally falls over and dies mm-hmm. while eating breakfast. Mm-hmm. And like Captain Aceta is like, that's what's going to happen to the rest of the church. Hard cut nine months later and the church is fucked, which I believe you wanted right. to uh, talk about. Oh, gosh. Um, well, I mean, Calton Zeta also, like, just, what a, he's, I think he might be my absolute favorite. <laughs> like, he just, like, he knows what he's doing. Um, but, yeah, I think, like, that's one thing that com- point, points out, as we know um, from various articles, is that young, the youth are leaving the church in droves yes. um, all around. And so that is also where I was like, well, it's going to happen in the church. Well, it's already happening because, yeah. like, people are rapidly aging you know the people who are still devout are aging and their traditions are not being passed on right um which you know the show is making literal on this moment of like we want we just watched someone fall over dead um while you know having having a little morning coffee um <laughs> which i mean if i'm gonna go i want to go after i have a coffee frankly yeah i would like to have a good breakfast with the hearty coffee right before. and then i can move on yeah um <laughs> you know to the um wherever they put um Query. Yes, after they go. <laughs> I, I, Captain Purgatory forever, or like bypass Purgatory. I don't know. Straight I mean, I feel like I do enough circles. witchy stuff that maybe like I could be just taken bypass to like, the whole system, right? Maybe I just go to like the druidic fields or something. <laughs> I don't know. That'd be far preferable for. I, I wish yeah. I could join you there, but I don't think I have enough witchy energy. So yeah, we can work on it. All right, I appreciate that. Uh, Voyello, you know, reports to Lenny that there's declining revenue. These banking regulations are a problem. Declining membership, declining tithings to the mm-hmm. church. Right? right, the Italian state is making noise about like cutting back on the you know eight per thousand that Lucia uh, schooled mm-hmm. us on, and all these sorts of things. And Voyello is like. If this happened, we might have to sell some of our artistic patrimony. Mm-hmm. And, like, patrimony is such a fascinating word to use yes, there. yeah. Like, with, obviously, the the implications of patriarchy, the implications of inheritance, the implication right. of ownership. When, obviously, like, a large part of Catholic wealth and accumulated wealth and accumulated things and stuff is as a result of colonial like endeavors mm-hmm. in the crusades and other periods right. right it's like it's colonial plunder that it gets translated in like the argot of the church itself mm. to be its patrimony that is like we have this long line of inheritance and it's something deeply core to ourselves right so like excellent writing to like go with that word in particular because mm. i think it tells us so much about the catholic church's uh, wealth accumulation and then covering up the reality of how that wealth was accumulated. True. And you know he's going to make for goddamn sure that they're not getting rid of the Venus of Villanova. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Finally making her beautiful reappearance. <laughs> and like a point of discussion on yeah. the show. Um, you know, what do you find so fascinating about this little statuette? <laughs> and Boyello um, says, I prefer not to delve into my psyche. Just a great line. Um, and no, also, I think like, that's Boyello being afraid to admit that he likes fat women, which... That's too bad for him, frankly. Yeah, yeah this is true. Uh, the show would like to delve into Oyelowo's psyche, though. Right. Even if not about the Venus of Villendorf. Mm-hmm. All right. Should we head into Potpourri? We're already in Potpourri. We're already in Potpourri. We're heading to where in the world is John's confirmation name. Yes. So we're going to get the real heart of this segment when Lucia comes back uh, briefly in a minute right. or two. But you had an excellent nomination for yes. us for this so episode. Yeah, so this is a saint, would you consider, Saint Dymphna. 
who is the patron saint of mental illness. She is who you pray to um, for healing from anxiety or if you're anxious or feeling depressed. Um, I think she is also the patron of a few other things. We couldn't find any other uh, some places. There's a school in, uh, in Ireland right. where she uh, is particularly... Right. Uh, powerful, but no. But she's venerated in both Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox. That is notable. Um, which I think is quite interesting. Her symbol's a lamp. You are frequently staying up late at night. When I should go to bed. When you should go to bed. <laughs> because I'm anxious. Because you're, yes, because you're anxious. I what really, do you think? I really like this suggestion. She's um, also an Irish saint. You are infamously yeah, yeah. Irish-ish. <laughs> Correct. Way to put it, for sure. Um, I'm going to consider this one. I'm going to uh, take it to my new therapist and ask her <laughs> if she thinks this is a good idea if I identify with St. Dimna okay. and if that would help me with some of the things I'm trying to work on. All right. All right. So, Fair enough. Shouts to Tanya on this episode. All right. So next, we're going we're gonna to bring Lucia back for a couple of segments. Lucia, obviously, we play the Where in the World is John's confirmation name game um, on our recent episodes. But I think more importantly, and Reed and I will have one for me, we're interested in your confirmation name. So here's the weird thing. I don't actually have one, but I am aware great. of Oh, <laughs> great. Just... This, is, this is another reason we're good colleagues, is that we both like lost so much of the Catholic memories that we have. See, this is interesting because... I think I I think it's a very American thing Ooh, to choose a confirmation awesome. saint. At least like I don't know I don't know if it's a cultural thing because so most of the people I know in my experience that are Catholic have names that are immediately, you know, uh, they clearly have an association with some saint. So, mm-hmm. you know, Lucia, Saint Lucy, very clear. So I wonder if, you know, for in Italy at least Catholics are not, you know, asked to choose a confirmation saint because it's implied that your name that you were given already has some association. So I was never, I wish I had been asked to choose a confirmation saint. That would have been awesome. Well, well then that begs the question is like usually in the States, the confirmation name you pick is your patron saint. Would you say you have a patron saint? What would your confirmation be? Or what would it be? Yeah. We can, I'm sure, you know, the powers vested in us as podcasters (laughs) and political scientists, we can, 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 you know, we can confirm your like confirmation name now in the US. Like, we'll take the temporal authority here. Awesome. I love that. (laughs) So, actually, I was hoping that you would use your powers (laughs) to do (laughs) this. Because if I could choose today, I think one of my choices would be St. Joan of Arc. Uh, A queer icon. Yes. Truly. I mean, a woman leading an army. Come on. It's, I think, I think it's one of the best things about her. Um, There are some aspects of Joan of Arc that can be a little bit like that still bother me a little bit. Like, obviously, you can interpret Joan of Arc as a symbol of French nationalism really easily, uh, Mm -hmm. which kind of bothers me. Uh, there's also the whole discussion of like purity, virginity that also troubles me deeply. Uh, but again, like at the end of the day, yeah, this is a woman in the middle of the Middle Ages, in you know, Middle Ages, you know, clearly a time where women didn't have any significant power, leading an army, absolutely disrupting gender norms and gender stereotypes. And, you know, at the end of her days being tried and killed on, you know, being accused of being a witch, essentially. Um, Mm -hmm. So 
by all means, you know, St. Joan of Arc, absolutely one of my favorites. So I will pick her. (laughs) So the apocryphal TikTok's first offering is actually Joan of Arc. So let's see if this is accurate to this person's predictions. So if you pick St. Joan of Arc, you are a raging lesbian or a trans mask. (laughs) You are a history and psychology lover, a purity freak raised in purity culture, you love Phoebe Bridgers and Ethel Kane. <laughs> and when questioned about religion, you admit to have been raised Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> Some things are true. <laughs> so my one, like my prime Joan of Arc identification, which Lucia will relate to this perhaps a little bit more than Regan, is that uh, one of Phoebe Bridgers. Students, yeah, one of our students like just asked me like, do you, I bet you listen to Freebie Bridgers, don't you? And I'm like, you know, guilty. Like you, you know, you got me. Uh, this is this is one of our favorite students, Lucia, um, who just graduated, who asked me this, and you might imagine who it is I'm talking about when she asked me this question. I, I think I know who it is. <laughs> That's great. I feel very, very solid in us confirming yes. Lucia's patron saint confirmation name. Lucia, do you have secondary names? No, her full name. So you are now. Lucia, St. Joan of Arc, Monzi, <laughs> welcome to the church of, of, of not quite Greg Clark's. <laughs> we will need to collect a signature from you later, but we'll prepare a certificate. Thank you so much, finally. <laughs> oh, I feel really glad that we were able to fit this segment in. And I also feel good that we have like three more minutes with Lucia so that we can do hot priest rating. Yes. Regan, you're up. All right, so my rating today for Hot Priest Rating is that we're seeing a lot of Lenny being a bit sad, um, kind of a doofus. We're giving him the rating of the young author from the Grand Budapest Hotel by uh, directed by Wes Anderson, um, just because he's... Um, doesn't does he's fit he's doing some weightlifting later but he's not <laughs> at his um, prime hotness unlike last episode in which I was like, uh, uh, scary Lenny, yeah. yeah. Do you, have, do you have a favorite Jude Law performance other than The Young Pope? Or do you have any prior uh, Jude Law hotness comparisons you would like to make between The Young Pope and some other uh, Jude Law vehicle? Unfortunately, I'm not that aware of other roles of Jude Law. I will confess that I haven't been, <laughs> I haven't seen many movies with Jude Law. I will, however, agree with Regan completely that, you know, the hotness of Jude Law in this episode is a little bit less than in the previous ones. I mean, I don't know if we can find a match for the scene where he, he gives the speech to the bishops when he's preparing to give the speech to the bishops, which, you know, Great, great scene. I will not, you know, that's kind of, for me, yeah, very hot in that scene, but. Yeah. Do you want to make any Stefano Corsi recommendations to the audience while we have you when we're talking about hot actors? Oh my gosh. I I haven't, so I've seen him in so many things, but I cannot, they're all Italian movies and I can't fully remember the titles right now. I know that he was in a TV show that aired on Netflix US too some time ago that I think was called 1992. And I know this TV show because it's 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 about the investigation that uncovered corruption in Italy in 1992. <laughs> so it has to do with my research. I had to watch Stefano Corsi. I was forced to for my research. I mean, oh no, what a punishment. Ter- ter- <laughs> terrible research story. Like, how could they do that to you? 
So, you know, if you can find that TV show, yeah, Stefano Corsi is definitely hot, really hot in that TV show. Great, great ratings from that point of view. So, <laughs> yeah, we can give him an honorary uh, hot priest from okay. Fleabag for, for that, I think. Sounds good. Yeah. All right, Lucia, we know you have to finish getting ready to move, which is happening tomorrow, I understand. Yes. So we are incredibly appreciative of your time. Reed and I will finish up the rest of the episode. It will be, we'll miss you dearly. It'll be not quite as good. We'll have a lot less knowledge about Italy and Italian culture and politics, um, but we'll do what we can. I know, but I'm also brushing up on my Italian for our what? Italian adventure next summer. <laughs> I, I am so looking forward to our Italian adventure next summer, Regan. Yes. So thank you, Lucia, for joining us on Not Quite Great Books. Thank you so much. What a joy to have Lucia for her own Jean Jean d'Arc uh, yes. moment and confirmation of our uh, temporal and otherworldly powers of the podcast yes. and for hot priest rating. So I think the only thing we have left is the cave. And Regan continues like her streak of being undefeated <laughs> and randomly pointing at Aquinas passages. And I want to promise I'm once again not cheating, right? Like, <laughs> literally open to a random page of the Summa. Regan did not look and just pointed. And here's what we get from Aquinas. So we're in Summa uh, 1A, 2AE91. And the question that Regan pointed us to is whether there is a law of lust. <laughs> this is Aquinas' consideration here. Is there lex fumitus uh, that is happening? And here's uh, how Aquinas answers this question. So, quote, whether there is a law of lust, it seems there, there is not a law of lust. For Isidore says that law is grounded in reason, but lust is not grounded in reason. On the contrary, it deviates from reason. Therefore, lust does not have the character of law. Moreover, law is directed to the common good, as noted above. But lust inclines us not to the common good, but to a private good of our own. Therefore, lust does not have the character of law. And he goes on and on at length after that for all of the different reasons that we cannot say there is a law of lust. Um, So great job. Regan, uh, your Aquinas skills are unmatched. Um, I maybe it's the power of God being channeled through me. I don't know. I mean, it's the power of Andrew's threesome actually right. channeled us to um, this question. You know, I would say there shouldn't be any laws to lust. Um, you should be able to fuck who you want consensually. Consensually, yes, yes. that is the one. Yeah. The one and uh, thing. Um, I think that's also interesting that Lenny is is bringing down the law on lusty things. Yeah, he's not a lustful person. No, even as he, he well, speaks. he has a lust for power and a lust. Yeah, exactly for himself. Yeah, right, right. Um, yeah, I think that this is um, certainly. Um, apt for this <laughs> I mean A because like we have Dusselier being extremely lawless uh, in his him. life which like we stand on this podcast I hope and they then, use protection though <laughs> I mean yeah we don't know for sure um, it would have been a good move for him to do that for yeah. sure um, and also like I think some of Lenny's homophobia some of his like anti-sex ideology is actually tied up with what Aquinas is saying here that like Lenny likes if not reason he likes an ordered 
train of thought, even if it has some mysterious elements to it when it comes to religion and to God. Right? So there's something about like reason can provide a certain kind of order. Uh, God can provide a certain kind of order for Lenny. Right? Rites, rituals, customs, customs provide a sense of order for him. So there's something about like the unruliness of pleasure or of lust or of sex. And it's as mm-hmm. Aquinas would say, like deviation from reason mm-hmm. or deviation from the common good. Not that Lenny's necessarily into the common good either. Right? But like the reason aspect of it I think like is uh, in symbolic of part of Lenny's resistance to sex to queerness so on mm-hmm. and so forth yeah a good assessment alright let's hope I mean you've got I think four more Aquinas's to go let's see if you can just like get them get them all like all ten, bangers if I'm 10 for 10 nothing, on this. nothing but bangers from Aquinas right. on this podcast so time for theory ship oh, definitely time for theory ship Um, So this episode, I'm assigning an unusual kind of theorist, not a political theorist, but um, if Lenny and Esther and Andrew were my students, they would all need to read some John Bowlby, um, a.k.a. the father of attachment theory. (laughs) And why do they all need this? Um, Well, Esther needs some literal parenting tips. Um, Andrew clearly having a lot of like um, mom issues, specifically this episode in some ways. Sexual awakening was this person that he calls Ma. Okay, fair. That's that's. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. That's damn near close to Freud. Uh huh. Um, and we I think Lenny needs Freud. Yeah, we'll correct that next episode. I don't know. I try to avoid Freud if possible. Um, and then Lenny needs to read Volby because um, he just needs to learn how to hold a baby. Oh my god. <laughs> Sadly, I would need to read that. That, uh, that here's the thing: well. is I feel confident that um, there are enough people in your life to teach you how to hold a baby, and I think you'd be okay. <laughs> I think I'd be okay, but like, if, especially if you were sitting down. Yeah, that's the optimum time. I would agree with that, so. um, but I also would feel bad. Like, hello, our friends of ours who like just had a baby. Like, I would like to experiment holding a baby with your baby. <laughs> uh, it's like very like Werner Herzog and Mandalorian. Like, I'd like to see the baby. <laughs> Uh, hours happening and that would feel a little strange to me okay <laughs> that's, I'll give you that um, that's a great suggestion uh, I've got a much more boring suggestion as per the usual um, I would like to give our Italian prime minister some Machiavelli <laughs> um, but like the whole range of Machiavelli okay. like we're giving him the prince obviously because okay. like when we think about Machiavelli's project, like right. if we're going to insert Machiavelli, we're going to insert like Lenny into Machiavelli's political okay. theory. Like the prince is perhaps the most useful of some of the uh, writing of Machiavelli and the discourses about the Catholic Church is maybe bears on this as well. So we're giving the PM um, some prince just to figure out like mm-hmm. how the fuck he can deal with uh, Lenny. Mm-hmm. We're giving him the discourses just because like without that, you get a very skewed and wrong version of what Machiavelli was up to. Mm-hmm. So like we need to make sure uh, he's got well rounded and then like my deep cut here is that we're also giving the prime minister Machiavelli's play Mandragola or the Mandrake Route mm-hmm. um, which is a very strange and fascinating play um, gets some great discussion I, I learned that one from my advisor Ross Bacheski because she taught the Mandrake Route which is all about gender and power um, okay. in drama um, as part of teaching Machiavelli Hannah Pitkin's famous book Fortune is a Woman which is about gender and Machiavelli also engages the Mandragola as well. I've taught the Mandragola alongside Machiavelli. Um, so, like, we get just a deeper understanding of what Machiavelli is up to, but also given how much is, like Lucia and you pointed out, the 
interaction between Lenny and the Prime Minister is so much based on beauty and the way they're representing themselves visually mm. that there's something about Machiavelli's dramatization of power uh, in a more visual medium of writing a play that like could be performed um, that I think would be useful for our guy, the Prime Minister. Yeah. Well, I'm sure my ignorance in that I didn't realize Machiavelli had written things other than the Prince. I didn't know Machiavelli wrote, <laughs> wrote, wrote a play until, until until I got to grad school and well, like Raz Pachesky, like the greatest. Uh, gotcha. Like okay. we're gonna read this too, students. All right, all right. Um, well, you do know that the Machiavelli does make an appearance in um, seminal favorite of Regan Levitt's movies. Princess Diaries 2. <laughs> I have not seen the second. Right, I know, but I, I some part of me thinks that you should, just so you can be, like, upset. Um, we'll do it for the Patreon. Um, <laughs> bonus content on the Patreon that doesn't exist, which uh, I think is a good as time of any. We have to go watch some episodes of The Bear with yes. Megan. Um, so we've got a thanks immensely to Regan for her young poping this summer. Right. Thanks, of course, to Lucia Monzi for joining us on this episode in a very hectic week and like weeks multiple of her life we should thank john for not holding babies and dropping them yes thanks to me for (laughs) knowing your boundaries Um, yeah knowing my boundaries and making good decisions and of course thanks to danielle um who actually i guess this would have already happened our listeners have had one danielle episode Mm. um by the time that they are listening to this, even though uh, she has mostly been uh, off this summer. Of course, thank you to producer Amy, and we will all join you next time. This has been Not Quite Great Books. A TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast, which is created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time. Go play some racquetball.